This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we dive into the proposed merger of JetBlue and Spirit with a mergers and acquisitions expert. It's coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 717 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight. I'm coming to you from the Ozarks in Arkansas. There's no cell coverage here, just the sounds of the creek next to my campsite. Maybe you can hear it. So again, we have a pre-recorded interview. This time, our main man, Micah, and I spoke with Amira Eladawi about the JetBlue Spirit merger. Amira is an expert merger consultant, and she's more than qualified to speak to this topic. So here's the interview. Micah and I are here with Amira El Adawe, who is an expert merger consultant. She's worked with Fortune 100 companies, government entities, as well as international organizations on mergers and acquisitions. Now, she was formerly a senior principal at Booz and & Company and an external advisor to Bain & Company. And in 2013, she founded Amira & Company, a boutique global management consulting firm. Uh, Amira is also passionate about teaching. In fact, she regularly coaches an immersive business boot camp on strategy and financial management. And she founded a microfinance NGO for single mothers in Egypt, which sounds pretty fascinating. She's fluent in English and Arabic, holds a double major BA in economics and international relations, an MBA from Harvard Business School, and a master's certificate in hospitality management from Cornell University, my old alma mater. Amira, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thank you, Max. Thanks for having me. Another Cornell alum. Well, I... I did undergraduate at Cornell. My MBA is n not from Harvard, but from another school in the Boston area. So uh, I think probably the timelines were different for the two of us, but uh, <laughs> we, we, we have that slight connection. Probably not as different as you think. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. I, I'm not sure if, if, if that's complimentary to me or to you, it, one, one or the other, but, uh, but, but thank you for that. <laughs> So Amira is here to help us understand the proposed JetBlue Spirit merger. And we've got just the right person to help us uh, look at that merger, what the impact is, what some of the issues might be. Amira, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the details of the merger. What exactly is this deal? What are the important aspects of it? So there's a few things here. So, I mean, as you probably have spoken about this before, um, Spirit was originally talking about merging with Frontier. Um, and that didn't go through. And mainly the reason it didn't go through is because JetBlue offered about a million, a billion dollars more to acquire Spirit. So there's a difference there. One would have been a merger because they're relatively close in size, uh, relatively speaking. But JetBlue is now proposing to acquire Spirit. Um, they're offering, um, I think right now it's at $33.5 a share. Uh, and they have a max set out to that to 34 point something. It, it changes. So I'm not sure it was 34.15 uh, the last I heard as a maximum uh, per share price for that. And, and they're offering to pay that in two separate uh, ways. They're offering to pay an upfront amount. And I think that's two and a half dollars a share. And then they're saying they will pay 10 cents a share 
um, every month from, I think, January until the day they close. And the reason they're doing it like that is because initially the uh, spirit board and shareholders were worried about um, uh, not getting regulatory approval for the deal and that this will basically cause them to lose the frontier deal and drag on for a long time and then not be approved. So I think part of the reason they structured it that way is they say, even if it takes longer, you guys make more money. We're going to pay you for the delays because we're taking on the responsibility of, of you know, selling this to the regulators and getting it approved. And what's in it for, for each airline? What are the advantages of uh, entering into this kind of uh, changed relationship? So that, that that's an interesting one because for for Spirit it's clearly a financial deal. They've they've been having financial trouble for a while. They've had a couple of losing uh, quarters or more than a couple. Uh, so they've been struggling financially for a bit. In addition to, I mean, I mean, we all know everybody loves to hate Spirit and <laughs> and, and hate on Spirit. So they for them I think it's primarily a financial proposal, a financial deal. Deal for JetBlue it's a bit different. I think for them, um, which which also has implications for the type of merger and for customers as well. I think for JetBlue, they just want the assets and they want the flight plans. So I think they just want the planes. They want the staff. Uh, I mean, everybody's trying to grow back in the airline space right now, and they just can't find either assets because the supply chain, there aren't, you know, the planes, everything is on the lane. And also staff, they just aren't enough people to hire like many other industries. This is not unique to the to the airline industry, but like like many industries now, they can't hire the right people. So it's easier to acquire someone that's existing. So I think that's what uh, JetBlue is looking for. You know, the questions that always come up in, in the aviation forums when this first started is how these two very dissimilar airlines could possibly look at getting together, where JetBlue has always been known for high-quality service at a reasonable cost. Originally, they were a low-cost airline with high-quality service. Now they're a regular-cost airline, but is really known for their really great service, where Spirit is very well known for miserable, terrible service, being an ultra-low cost or an ultra-low quality carrier, as sometimes they're described. How do the two cultures get together, and how could it possibly work, and which direction will it go? There was so much concern that this is going to ruin JetBlue, whereas, from my perspective, I think it's just this is going to raise spirit into a better, giving JetBlue more quality. So you're exactly right, Micah. This is the uh, $3.8 billion question right there, right? That's what they're paying for for uh, for Spirit. And if they get that wrong, that's what they lose. And I think primarily the biggest challenge for this is going to be culture. Um, so as you mentioned in the beginning, Max, my company specializes in mergers and acquisitions, but we don't just work on the deals. What, where we focus on is post-deal. It's after you sign on the dotted line, how do you make these two companies one and how do you get them to work successfully and how do you achieve you know, that very elusive 20% of mergers that actually succeed because the other 80% fail. <laughs> and in this one, I think the biggest challenge is going to be culture because the, it's not just that they're known for what, what one of them has good customer service and, and one of them has bad customer service because you can sometimes have that just because they're not efficient or because they haven't been trained well, etc. So it, it can sometimes be an easy fix. But I think the issue with Spirit and JetBlue is primarily actually the culture. So I think Spirit actually does not care about customer service. I don't say that derogatively. I think it's it's a strategy. Like their their CEO thinks that's not his issue and not his purpose and not his cause in life. So he doesn't I mean we've all seen, you know, some of the leaked emails. Like they just 
the customer is not always right. <laughs> the customer does not come first. And they've made that very clear. Whereas JetBlue is always on top of, you know, customer service lists, etc. So this is not just an issue of um, are they understaffed or do they not have the right infrastructure to serve well or do they not have the right scripts? It's actually been a culture that's come from the top down saying that's not your job. We don't care. Whereas JetBlue obviously do. So this is going to be the biggest challenge, especially since they want to keep the staff. Like one of the things they're buying Spirit for is the staff. So how do you actually integrate those staff and change that culture? Um, and I think what they're betting on is um, retraining and they're betting on that this is a top-down thing. And if the top-down instruction changes or if they are immersed in a different culture, that most people would prefer to, to offer good customer service. I don't know if I buy that argument, but that has to be what they believe. You have to go in believing that you can change or that not every employee in spirit believes that because otherwise you're you're fighting a losing battle. You can't change every employee's nature. Right, right. And I think it's important to sort of um, reinforce the, the notion that culture is is a big driver in things like this. And I mean, I came out of a corporate environment. I worked for a Fortune 50 company for, for many years. And when you're in that environment, you get to see uh, different corporations and, and the culture, the, you know, sort of the essence, the DNA of uh, two companies in the same industry can be completely different. Um, one thing that comes to mind is uh, a, a company that's sort of driven by the engineering viewpoint versus another company in the same business that's more driven by a, a marketing or a, or a product kind of viewpoint. And they can both be selling the same things, but in very different ways and on the basis of, of very different Different culture. You, you can say it out loud, Max. Boeing and McDonnell Douglas is what you're talking about, and and, and actually, I was going to ask you. I'm wondering if you can, Amir, if you have can talk about that at all in terms of comparison, because it turned into a, a completely different thing in terms of a, a merger and acquisition situation. So I'll tell you just just to what you were saying earlier. Like I always tell my clients that culture will eat your deal for breakfast. Like it will literally have they could devour your strategy if you have the, the wrong culture. Like you can have the best strategic plans, you can have the best deal in place, the best uh, financials, the best business case, and then culture will absolutely eat that up. And and in that eighty percent of mergers that fail. I would argue that the majority of them is driven by culture. And one interesting thing that you mentioned, because I was actually going to say, let me define culture first, because there's also a lot of misconception about what that is. But I think you all, you have it exactly right, because people, when they think, they hear culture, like when I do mergers, we have multiple work streams when we do integrations. And I, I, I force my clients for one of them to be culture. And the pushback I always get in the beginning when I say one of the key work streams has to be culture is that they think I mean, you know, the culture of the 90s and the 80s where you have offsites and trust falls and everybody holds hands and sings kumbaya and, and goes to drinks after after the office and all of that. And I say, look, I don't care about that at all. I actually don't think even employees care. I think we all have friends outside of work. Nobody wants, you know, their best friends to be their, you know, their colleagues to be their best friends. We all have our lives. We all want to leave the office and go back to our lives. So this idea that people, that culture means people have to get along and be friends, that's not it. So culture, when I talk about culture in the context of a merger and acquisition, it's actually corporate behavior. It's exactly what you said. What drives your behavior? Is it driven, as you said, by engineering versus marketing? And sometimes it's it's not even that. Sometimes it's as simple as how do you make decisions? Like what's the process for making decisions? How do you communicate with each other? Like I had a deal that was, I think, a $4.6 billion deal that almost fell apart. 
And the, 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 I mean, it's not the only reason, of course, I'm exaggerating, but one of the reasons, one of the main reasons is just the companies communicated very differently. One company communicated by email, everything was written down, you copied everyone. And if you didn't copy everyone, they would be offended and they would think like, you're missing me off the email. And the other company thinks, if you copied my boss, you're escalating. Like, why are you, like, you know, ratting on me? And why, why? And they would prefer, like, they would say, why did you, why did you write, write an email? Why are you making? Why are you escalating it? Why don't you just pick up the phone and call me? And that was in, just purely a culture from a cultural perspective. How do employees behave? And I think in that perspective, that will be a major issue for JetBlue and Spirit is how employees, even if people want to behave differently in Spirit, the processes they have and the systems, how the company behaves and how the employees behave has been built in for such a long time. You have to really change that from scratch to get them to behave the way JetBlue wants them to behave. And the challenge here is that most companies completely underestimate that, if not ignore it at all, when they work on due diligence, when they work on driving together the deal, when they work on calculating synergies, they forget to calculate the cost of making those culture changes. So that, you know, the 600, 700 million they're saying in synergies, I'm sure that completely doesn't take, I mean, I'm not sure, but I would guess that that would completely does not take into account any cost that is spent on actually changing the behavior of employees and on every single process in the company to get that to, 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 uh, to get them to, to merge properly or to integrate properly. So for a, uh, a large merger or acquisition, something of this scale, I have to believe that the the companies would form some kind of a, a team uh, in order to uh, to manage the transition, and uh, I, I would think that they would need to be intimately involved in this issue of understanding the importance of the culture differences and building the plan to accommodate those differences. Which uh, that's got to be a, a a difficult task for sure. What about impacts on others? Um, well, on the shareholders, it seems like everybody believes or assumes that it's uh, a valuable deal for the for the shareholders. What about the flying public? What does this deal mean for them? I think that that's also a really interesting question because you're going to have the or, or you actually you already have the JetBlue team saying that this is a really good deal for customers because it increases competition, it, it gives them scale, allows them to compete with the big four. And uh, as they compete with the big four, they raise uh, they, they raise quality because they have better customer service and better quality and they push down price. Um, unfortunately, every merger says it's going to do that and very few actually have. Uh, and you have on, on the other side, those that are arguing or the regulators for sure and the Biden administration will, will continue to do that is arguing that taking out the lowest cost provider there is, regardless of how, uh, you know, loved or unloved they are. People are still, they're in business. So people are buying them. People are making the choice every day to choose price over quality because at this point, nobody can argue that I didn't know they were going to be like this, like I, maybe a few years ago, but now everybody knows and people are choosing every day to say, but for me, either this is all I can afford or the trade-off makes sense for me. So taking out that lowest cost provider uh, will actually even more likely than not push up prices uh, or, or allow the, the the bigger airlines to actually take their prices up. And I was just reading 
um, about somebody who did some research, comparative research about the prices for um, American Delta and United in in markets that uh, Spirit is active in, and they're saying that you know statistically speaking, the prices that the markets that Spirit is active in are strong in those three airlines have lower prices. Now I haven't looked at the methodology and the, and the research, so I can't you know vouch that that's actually accurate. But if they actually did that, I, I would not be surprised if that is actually the case. So once that happens. Um, I, I know JetBlue is saying that's not going to happen, but you know every merger says that's not going to happen, and, and more often than not, that does, does result in increasing prices. The only upside might be if Frontier and Allegiant, etc., step in, and if, if they have the capacity and they have the assets to fill up that space and take up the space of Spirit and keep those prices low, then maybe they can you know hedge a little bit from that prices going up. Um, but again, we we we, we talked about this earlier, uh, assets aren't available, aren't easily available, staff isn't available. So I don't know if they would be able to fill in that space, even if they wanted to. What you're saying seems to make sense because there used to be a lot of the discussion about the Southwest effect, which was exactly that. Wherever Southwest would set up service, all the other airline fares went down. So it would make sense that the same thing would happen spirit. Even without a study, it would just be logical to say, well, if it worked here, it would work there. Yes, it would, it would make sense. Yeah. What is the government approval process like? How does this? Uh, what, what What is the next step from a you know, regulatory standpoint in getting approval for this? So I actually don't know the, the exact process for um, for getting something like this approved, but but I can tell you that given the focus of the Biden administration on inflation, and given just also the public outcry over inflation, the idea of doing something that might be even perceived to raise prices or eliminate a low-cost uh, uh, provider will be a lot more challenging now than it is uh, than it would be at any other point in time in our history. Uh, because if, if it wasn't for that issue, it wouldn't be a big deal because JetBlue already said that they're not going to, that they're going to divest out of uh, any markets where they have larger market share. And they're so small compared to the, the big four that you can't argue that this causes unfair competition because like, the other guys are so much bigger. Like this, even if these guys uh, merge, th- that's not the threat, which usually was what would um, derail the regulation. But in this case, I think it's just that the current political climate and the current concerns around inflation and taking out a low-cost provider that might raise prices. Um, there's going to be a lot of pushback from the Biden administration for that. But the, the actual step-by-step process, I, I'm not really familiar with okay. that. The other question I had about that is, what do you know about the possibility? JetBlue recently announced a huge deal with American Airlines, and they're not merged, It's but they do have a deal. And when you go on the JetBlue website and you start looking for flights, you start being shown American flights. And, uh, and that also changes competition. Do you think that's going to have to change for this merger to go through? Um, I, I don't think right now for for this, except if, again, in markets where – with the deal with American and with the deal with Spirit, they end up having a larger, an extremely large market share, or they, it begins to be that they're monopolizing that market. But I think they said they're already going to deal with that and they're going to divest out of those markets or tweak the American deal to make sure they're not monopolizing any specific markets. Um, but the interesting part there is everybody at some point, when when we heard that, we assumed American was going to buy JetBlue at some point. 
and and that would have been a, a, a big one the regulators might have might have had an issue with. Um, and now with JetBlue buying Spirit, I think that also hampers any like or or definitely uh, would would make it an, an issue if American were thinking of buying JetBlue. Are there any uh, impacts on the other airlines um, that you can think of that uh, other other than price pressure, perhaps, that might be a result of this? So price pressure is one. Um, the other thing is the opportunity for what happens at that low end of the market, which, again, we'll see if there really is a demand for, uh, for, for that low cost. Spirit doesn't have loyal customers, so we can't say it's going to take its loyal customers with it. They're just loyal to the they're just you know uh, price conscious customers. Right. So where do they go? Are they going to be willing to pay a little bit more and and go to JetBlue? My guess would be no, because they had that option before and they opted not to do it. Right. Mm. So th- there will be a gap in the market, and that's what Frontier is saying now. Their CEO is doing cartwheels, right? Like he's super happy. He's saying that's the best news for us. Is like we, we didn't have to buy like, pay anything for them, and we're going to get all these customers. But again, the challenge there is going to be, does he have capacity to serve them? Uh, but I think that would be an, an, an interest, not just Frontier, but you have Allegiant and you have a, a, a few others. Um, so what will happen to that share? Um, and if somebody can actually take that share and offer that price without the miserable service experience, then maybe they can actually grow that space. So I, I think the biggest question for other airlines is, what do you do with those customers? Do you continue to serve them? Which again, as bad as we, we all like to, you know, dump on spirit, but they actually did change the market and they did make uh, travel affordable to a lot of people who never would have thought of air, air travel before because the top four or top five all through the years have thought that air travel is a luxury that's only afforded to the few people who can afford it. Hmm. Um, and I mean, uh, despite what I look like, Max, I, I was, uh, I, I was, I remember the days when you had to dress up, when you had to fly. Like when I flew business class, I had to wear a suit and stuff. Like it was a, it was a lovely experience to be flying. Uh, but I mean, now they've made it like, you know, it's a greyhound with wings. So is, are we going to continue down that route? Which is, I think, a good thing. Like I think it's actually a good thing to make that available to more people. Um, and even the things that it's, it's interesting when when you ask people now, like, why is it that you hate spirits so much? And they, they list the reasons. Most of the reasons they list actually now apply to all other airlines <laughs> as well. Right. Yeah. Like they say, yeah. oh, I have to pay for my carry on. You have to for the four major carriers as well, unless you pay for a more expensive ticket. Like they offer the same thing. So it, it's not what they did. It, it's just the attitude they had while they did it that got people to hate on them so much. Hmm. But that that the kind of disruption going or, or leaving the industry will, will, will have, I think, uh, a bit of an impact on the industry as a whole. What kind of considerations need to be taken uh, when, uh, when doing a merger in regards to unions? I think about the American merger with, uh, with U.S. Air and the pilots union, and pilots unions are very strong, and, and there's still issues going on there. And when they did that merger, there were still issues going on between U.S. Air and America West in terms of the pilots unions that, that were never resolved. So when this kind of merger comes together, what is looked at in terms of getting the unions to work together in, in, in one company? I mean, Unfortunately, they usually don't deal with that early enough or proactively enough. Uh, uh, unfortunately, the people who work on the deal, that's what, that's the kind of stuff I get stuck with after they sign the deal. <laughs> they, the people who work on the deal have a deal sheet. They have their synergies. They have their cost saving. They have, you know, the bonuses they all get when you sign on the dotted line. And then all these operational mess up that you're talking about gets left to, you know, here, here's your new baby. Take it. Good luck. <laughs> and, 
and then th- there you, you end up with all the issues. So, I mean, I would love to say that I think they're working on that now and talking to the unions and figuring out how to do this. But my guess is if they are like most other mergers, they will deal with this after the deal is signed, after the shareholders approve it, the regulations, after it's a, it's a done deal, they then start those negotiations. And, and in this case, I think we're already hearing from um, uh, the flight attendant union as well, not just the uh, not just the pilot union saying they need to see benefits for them as well. The benefits can't just be for the shareholders. They need to see benefits as well. And I bet you anything that deal sheet that calculates the synergies doesn't take into account sharing any of the gains with the pilots or the flight attendants, right? Right. The area where you find benefits when you have a merger is when one, when the, the company buying the, uh, the asset actually has better benefits and a better deal. That becomes a really good deal for the unions because they can just say, okay, we, we want the benefits these guys get. We're now, you know, you're now one company. We then transfer our people under that umbrella. And in most cases, if it's a merge, if it's an acquisition, not a merger, when it's not equal and one company is larger, if the larger company has better terms, more often than not, they'll just offer it. Like it would not be a big uh, fight. The issue becomes when you're merging two equally sized companies and they each have benefits. And then the unions will usually want both of the benefits on both sides, right? And, and usually you have, you get one thing and you give one thing. So the numbers balance, but then they'll say, we want the benefits that both companies get and we don't want to give up anything. And then you end up getting, you know, stuck a little bit in the middle. Um, or you have the other way around is, is, is usually. Uh, the, the painful one is when you have a smaller, in, in this case, it doesn't apply, but when you have a big company buying a smaller one, and if the smaller company actually offers better benefits and has a better culture, and usually that's, you know, more often than not, that's the case, right? The smaller companies are, you know, more fun, uh, they have l- lots of perks and, 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 and more benefits, etc. And the more you corporatize, and, and I'm a specialist in tourism and hospitality, so hotels are the same as airlines in that case, um, usually the larger ones are strict on cost and, and, and they cut costs in, in the corners and they have less perks, etc. Uh, usually that becomes the issue with the union of the smaller firm saying, you're not going to take away my perks. You're all making tons of money out of this. You can't, we can't be the only people losing out of this deal as we transfer to the larger corporation. And that usually takes a very long time to deal with. Hmm. Well, and the other thing that comes into play with airlines that I think is rather unique to them is the seniority list because pilots and flight attendants all work and all are employed and get all their benefits based on seniority. And you have two different lists of seniority and how they merge those two, I think, becomes a big argument. Especially, I mean, in, in this case, it might be less of an issue because they're keeping the routes and keeping the, the flights. So they're not, you're not competing for the same spots. In, at least if, if you believe the story that, you know, we're hearing from JetBlue that they're keeping and expanding, et cetera. But you're absolutely right. That usually happens when they're merging and then, um, you know, consolidating flight plans and cutting down number of flights in a day, like with the U.S. and American um, a merger, for example, if they didn't keep all the same the number of flights, uh, they didn't you know, consolidate both or, or add them to each other. There was a, a lot of uh, cutting out of those. So then you had people competing for the same f- flights and the same routes and the same, uh, you know, ben- on-the-job benefits as well as financial benefits. And But if the company actually is going to be growing, if they're actually doing that because they have the demand, they have the kept-up demand that will allow them to keep or to utilize all of the assets and grow them, then that will be less of an issue. But I don't know if that's true as well. I think that's the bet that JetBlue is making. They're saying we have demand that we can, you know, fill 
even at our prices, because they're not saying we're going to keep, they're saying we're going to retrofit the planes and we're going to do all of that. And they they can't possibly say we're going to retrofit the planes and offer better service, but then keep the prices just as low. Like that's, you can't do that and have the synergy numbers they're quoting, right? So that they're quoting synergy numbers. They're saying they're upgrading the planes. That has to mean that they're going to take up the prices for that deal to make financial sense. Um, and they're offering so much for it. So that they, they have to recoup that somehow. They must be planning to recoup that somehow. So they have to be banking on the fact that there's enough unmet demand uh, that, that they have, not from the spirit customers, but from their own customers who are going to be willing to uh, you know, fly those planes at higher prices. Are there any other aspects of this deal that we haven't touched on that you think are relevant to uh, this particular deal? I think this one is going to to hinge on culture and it's going to hinge on, as you said, the team that they get to actually manage that integration. Um, and I think if they decide to do that in-house, that is going to be not a very good decision. Is that what most companies try? Do they try to do a, you know, do it all in-house with current resources or, or do they go outside for others? So I think for really big deals, they, they go outside, but for smaller deals or companies that are not financially flush, if you will, they will try to do it in-house. And uh, you'd be amazed at how many times I'm hired to clean up after they've tried for a year and just messed it up yeah, completely. Yeah. And then uh, they say, well, can you come fix this? And then you come and you see what they've done with the culture. And it's really hard to build trust that somebody actively lost, as opposed to from the beginning, you don't know each other, you don't have trust, I can help you build it from scratch. But if you've spent a year breaking down every bridge <laughs> and, and destroying every iota of trust between the two companies, it's very hard to rebuild that. Um, and that's usually what happens because if you choose an internal team, everybody in that team has a horse in the race. Mm-hmm. Everybody has an ulterior motive. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but everybody has a stake in this game, right? So you can't ask people to be completely altruistic as they deal with the integration without thinking of the impact on their their job and their friends and their colleagues and their office, etc. So it's it's usually, I mean, I would highly hope that they are getting external help for this because you have to have a neutral party mediate something that's going to be as difficult as this. And they also have to get an external party who understands culture and understands how to deal with culture. And that's the challenge with integrations. Very few of the large consulting firms that people often think of off the top of their head know culture at all or, or know how to deal with that. So that's going to be a big challenge. One of the things that I was involved in quite frequently before I retired was forming teams to address difficult issues or problems. And besides including the stakeholders or representatives of the stakeholder groups in that team, I always thought it was important to bring in outsiders, someone ideally who had no knowledge or experience with with the topic at hand. Someone who could ask those, you know, those stupid questions and uh, cause some light bulbs to go off from the, right. uh, the folks that had a vested interest in it, um, as well as others who are uh, process oriented and understand uh, uh, how you can get to a uh, to an endpoint through the use of a good process to take to take the group there. Uh, maybe you can tell us something a little bit about your company and the the folks who are uh, part of it and their roles, where they come from, what they do. 
So we specialize uh, in M&A integration. So as I said, post-deal support. So after you sign on the dotted line, somebody actually has to make these companies one. Somebody actually has to help you grow and scale all the things you promised your shareholders before you sign. Somebody actually has to make that happen. And uh, one of the key things we, we do that, that is different from other consulting firms that work in the space is that we actually work with both teams from the acquired company and the acquiring company. So usually when I, when I lead a merger, I have a team of 50, 60 people and I usually lead like multi-billion dollar mergers, so not small ones. But for those ones, I will have 50 or 60 people on that integration team, wow. half of them from the bought company, half of them from the sold company. They won't be working full time on this, but the idea is to involve as many people as possible from every function and across all levels to be able to, ha to have them actually author their own future as opposed to me coming in with my team of 10, 15 brainiacs, you know, sitting in a room and telling them, here is what your future is going to look like because we're so much smarter than you. So we're going to tell you how to do this better because we're just so brilliant. I don't <laughs> think that works. I don't think it succeeds and I don't think it's sustainable. So we work with both teams uh, to get that experience that you talked about, so to, to get people who both know these spaces and also who don't know them and who provide an external perspective. But also, I think a really important thing is that you offer this, you know, Switzerland, this neutral third party where, where companies, when both companies can't agree what the future looks like. Uh, do we have to conform to your system or do you have to conform to ours? Do we have to do, because you're the rich company that bought us, do we have to do everything your way or not? And answering those questions and not just defaulting to doing everything like the bigger company's way um, is, is really important. And, and, and somebody to actually mediate that and help them reach a decision that's based on actual facts and analytics and not, you know, who's stronger or who's more senior in the room or who's more powerful or all of that. Like that's all part of the process. So we'll usually come in, we'll have experts in um, every function there is that, that is part of the integration. We'll create what we call work streams. So I'll usually have 12 to 15 work streams. Culture will be one, communication will be one, but also accounting, HR, IT or technology, depending on the company, commercial, all of that. So we'll have, depending on sort of the industry and, and, and the sector, there will be one for almost every function of the company. We will then get people from both sides of the companies, will understand how they each run their businesses, and we'll figure out at each level who runs it more efficiently, not on every, not in, in total, we'll not say who does marketing better. That's too big a question and nobody does marketing better than the other. But Along the various aspects of marketing, we break it down into like really every like the smallest pieces and think, what are you strong at? Like, where are you good at in marketing and where are you weak at? And can the other company fill that gap? And can they make you stronger where you're weaker? And can you make them? And of course, in the perfect world, that fits perfectly. Like you're strong at something that they're weak at. And that happens maybe 60% with 60% of things. And then, you know, another 20%, they'll fight it out who's better. And there'll be 20% where they're both not good. And then we say, let's all put our heads together and see, can we find, like with the collective learnings in the room, can we find a better way to do both? Because you never get this chance where you're actually like looking under the rugs and behind the cushions and, you know, all of that of a company than you do, than you would during an integration. So it's an opportunity to actually optimize as you go along. And that's why when we say we do 
M&A integration and enterprise optimization, because as we integrate, we also optimize along the way. So we'll have subject matter experts in each area who leads those, who would lead those teams who actually work with the teams from the, from the client. So we don't just do it ourselves and tell them, here's the plan. We actually create the team from both companies and, and my team would be an expert in that space who asks the right questions, as you said, and who, who shows them how to do the analysis. We bring in the subject matter expertise. We bring in the best practices. We bring in the latest know-how and skill set of how to analyze and how to reach a decision, but we also help the teams figure out how to work together better and how to be able to reach decisions on their own so that by the end of the merger, they actually are one company that knows how to work together, uh, as opposed to if I give them the plan and leave, they still can't figure out what to do with it as a team. And again, that's why most mergers fail. It's not because they have a bad business plan and it's not because they have a bad integration plan. It's because they actually can't get it to work. Before... Um... First of all, feel free to say no to this question, okay? <laughs> but uh, and, and nobody's going to be offended. But could you give us an example of a situation that, without giving anything away, that you're the proudest of something that that you've done that was you're just so happy about that it worked out, or or, or, or the way that it happened? Again, without giving anything away, and again, say no if you don't want to. No, I'm happy to do it, actually, because it's an interesting one. It's my first big client on my own. So I used to be a principal at, uh, at Booz and & Company, uh, and I left and started my own practice. And usually when you start your own practice, you assume you're going to get you know, a, f a few medium-sized clients who worked with you before, who really like you, who are going to come with you. But you assume that even the big clients will stay with the big company name. They're not going to come with you as you move. And the first big client I had, and this is like, I mean, when I say big, I mean, huge client, like FTSE 50 client, um, where uh, they had actually hired one of the top three consulting firms. Like if I asked you to name three, you would name it, like you wouldn't miss that name. And they had paid them millions of dollars to work with them for a couple of years to help integrate their latest acquisition. And a year and a half later, they had had no progress. They tried to do it in-house for six months. And so now it's two years after that, and they had made no progress. And they were trying to, to find a different way to do it. And uh, one of their senior leaders had worked with me before, and, and they said, well, I, I think she has a different approach to how to do this. And like, we've tried all the traditional ways and they didn't work. How bad can she mess up? Like they've messed it up. Every, we've, we've messed it up already. Like how bad can this be? So they, they decided to take a risk on me and it was my first big client. I couldn't even prove to them that my approach of saying, let me work with both teams and I'll help you build the plan. I'm not going to give it to you. And all of that wasn't tested. It was just my theory of this is the right way to do consulting as opposed to what the big consulting firms do. And they let me do it. And in eight months, we were fully integrated. They had, uh, uh, you know, fully integrated people were operating, working together. We actually had uh, one company that was working. And I can't say they were best of friends because there was two years of animosity there, but they were actually working and functional and, and, and able to, um, you know, have the basis that they could build some future trust and a relationship on. Um, and that's sort of, again, my first client so a very long time ago, but I, I'm particularly proud of that one. And what sort of timeline do you think that JetBlue and Spirit should be considering to uh, to put this together? I mean, after approval, uh, how long? I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's difficult to predict and a lot of things can happen or not happen. But uh, what kind of time horizon do you think uh, these airlines should be looking at to integrate? So I think in this case, there's going to be a lot of external factors, not just what they do in, internally. So if, I mean, if, if I was doing the merger, I would say, and if you had no external uh, uh, challenges, 
I would say two years. If you worked on it for two years, you can get it done up and running. But that's never going to happen because there's so many external challenges there. One of them being, like, especially in the airlines, that you just, it's, it's not like an office. You're retrofitting planes, which is more, you know, it's more time consuming. It's, more, it's difficult to do. And it also takes a lot more money to do. So they have to do that. The loyalty programs for airlines are very, very complicated. And so even if they did their, the, the merger of their assets in two or three years, I would assume their loyalty program would take longer. Uh, as we've seen with other airlines, it takes them a longer time before they actually, you know, fully integrate the, the, their loyalty programs. Um, and not to say that that's how long it takes. I think it should not take that long, but often that does seem to be uh, how long they would take. And, and in this case, again, because they're not particularly huge airlines, so I, I'm, I'm sure they're not sitting on tons of cash that they just can't figure out how to spend, especially after you know spending that on this merger. I don't know how, how quickly they'll be able to move with um, the, the, the higher cost ones. Interesting. All right. Well, we want to thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us talking about this topic. Uh, tell us where we can uh, learn more about your company, the company website or any social media presence, perhaps. Uh, yes, you can find us. Uh, our website is amiraandco.com. So that's A-M-I-R-A and A-N-D-C-O dot com. Uh, and we are under the same on LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, I, I don't do a lot of social media, media other than uh, than LinkedIn. I think the world has more than enough tweets. You don't yeah. need mine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I would, I would agree. All right. Amira, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, Micah, thanks for, for joining us in, in the conversation as well. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Nice and short. If I had internet, I'd include more content, but I don't, so I can't. Now, I'll package this up, and when I can find a cell signal, I'll upload the episode. Maybe it will be early, maybe late. We'll see. Thank you for your understanding. And thanks to our guest this episode, Amira El-Adawi. Now, you can find us and show notes for this episode at airplanegeeks.com. The direct link to the show notes is airplanegeeks.com slash 717. And as always, you can reach us via email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. Although, maybe a while before I'm able to see it. So please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody.